A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Is there a more dramatic, suspense, suspenseful, excruciating moment in sport than the couple of seconds after a world title boxing fight when the announcer has read out the judges' scorecards, pauses for what seems like an eternity before uttering the words, and the new, or and still. These are the sweet words, and the new, by the way, champion of the world, that Carl Frampton got to hear in New York on Saturday night. Owen Murphy and Ken here with Monday's Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Hi, Ken. Hi, Owen. How are you? Hi, Murphy. How are you doing? Hey there, Owen. I find it almost difficult to watch and I, the, it always seems like the that gap before the words are uttered lasts about 20 seconds. It's probably mm-hmm. one second, maybe it's two, but it feels like a hell of a long, long time. Frampton became only the second Irish fighter to win world titles in two different ways. He did it by becoming the first fighter ever to beat Leo Santa Cruz, and he did it by producing a ridiculously impressive performance, hurting Santa Cruz early on, mixing it when he had to, and then getting himself the hell out of trouble brilliantly any time it looked as though his opponent was really about to pour it on as he tends to do. One of our favourite sports writers, Donald McRae, was at the Barclays Centre. Donald has written some of the best boxing books around, including A Man's World, The Story of Emil Griffith, which we covered last year. Not only was he there, actually, he was in the dressing room. I saw him tweeting about this before the fight. Uh, so he was there in those sort of last yeah, it's, moments. It's weird. Uh, when you hear uh, <laughs> when you hear someone is going to be live tweeting a sporting event, what you expect is, you know, tweets during the sporting event. But uh, Don, I think, had it absolutely right because he was in the dressing room. Uh, a series of brilliant tweets outlining exactly what was going on in the Frampton dressing room. And then walked out uh, and then just decided to watch the sporting event as opposed to trying to live tweet it, mm. which is a much better idea. He was for Don, if not for people who couldn't see the fight. <laughs> Frampton was also celebrating, or sorry, I should say Don McCray was also celebrating with Frampton afterwards. I saw a clip on the BBC where Frampton is being interviewed. So he put on this free bar. He tweeted at Frampton and said, look, anyone who's around New York, come and party with me. This is the morning after the, the fight. Uh, he got a fairly good very healthy response there from the fans. The uptake was good. The, the uptake was good indeed. Uh, there's a bit where he's being interviewed and he's talking about how great it was to win the fight and the camera pans around to a bunch of slightly inebriated gentlemen in the in the bar and they all started singing. I don't know how fed up you are with the Will Grigg song, lads, but this was an, a nice take on it. Frampton's on fire. Santa Cruz is terrified. <laughs> So Frampton kind of stops the interview, walks over and joins in in the middle of this chat, which was a really nice moment. That might be a little bit old, 
But I gotta say, Murph, the uh, the Viking Thunderclap. <sighs> Tell us about the latest development here over the weekend. So uh, yeah, I was in uh, Crow Park on um, on Saturday. Uh, pretty empty Crow Park. I mean, I think the the crowd was announced as twenty seven thousand or twenty eight thousand or something like that. But at no stage were there actually twenty eight thousand people in the in the stadium because a lot of Donegal fans they came, they saw, they kicked Cork's Cork's ass, and then they hit the road pretty much straight away after the final whistle. Mayo fans may have been in for maybe the second half of that, so maybe like for the last ten minutes of the Donegal game there was twenty eight thousand people in the stadium, but that was about it. So uh, second half was you know muddling along in the Mayo Westmead game. And then, so I was in the Hogan stand, I looked across, and at the corner where the Cusick stand meets the Davin stand, mm-hmm. I was, something, you know, my ear, my eye was drawn to that corner. So I looked over, and there was a thunderclap had started. <laughs> and I was, it was really half-hearted, really, you know. Probably you know, out of sync. It wasn't what like, you need yeah, with yeah. the thunderclap is the pause, and then everyone knows when to go. But mm-hmm. this is basically just like a slow hand clap. It's not even the Viking thunderclap, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, Appeared a little. You kind of also need the entire stadium to be, or otherwise, you know, at least a annoying. huge yeah. section of supporters to be doing. Yeah. So at that curve, I was looking. I was like, "That's no, nah, it can't be." But it did appear to me that there was a man in a cow suit <laughs> that was leading <laughs> this fucking photograph. So he had turned his back entirely on the pitch, yeah. and his two little hooves <laughs> yeah. were were calling the beat, so so uh, so to say. Um. Now I got a text from, or I got a tweet from someone saying that it was actually a Sean the Sheep costume. So it was livestock of some description. I maintained that it was ca- that it was a cow, but I mean, if 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 someone was a little closer than I was to the scene, then either way, it's hard to get much of a purchase off the the hoof. Yeah, no. To be to be fair, he did. It did seem to be like a, a nicely fitted cow suit. I mean, it wasn't. You know, there there didn't seem to be a whole lot of. of uh, of uh, wastage Excess there, he did, yeah, no, he okay. did. He 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 did seem to be to be getting into the swing of things. Murph tweeted that the Viking Thunderclap can needs to be given uh, given a Viking burial. Put it aflame. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of feeling myself being more in favour of it now again. You're back to enjoying it again. Yeah, having listened to all this nonsense. <laughs> well, I, no, I, I, I do I mean, think if there were eighty thousand people doing it, then maybe I'm might just be something... a little puzzled by this because I was wondering, did anything else happen at Croke Park this weekend? I mean, was this the was this the main thing that happened uh, in the GEA program over the weekend? This this attempt by a cow, a man in a cow suit, to lead a small section of fans in a Viking Thunder Club. was that the thing that really sticks in your memory? No, no, Ken. Uh, I think that uh, we 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 should now give due praise to the story of the summer. Of course, the Tipperary footballers. I forget about that. We'll praise them with Ushin and Mike Quirk in a little while. What let's, the hell happened? Let's stomp all over the grave of the Galway footballers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it wasn't uh, wasn't good. wasn't good. What was uh, the consensus of your the consensus brethren was afterwards? The rest of the tribesmen that we half expected this to happen in Castlebar in May, and that it would have been better for all concerned if it had happened in Castlebar to Mayo. Um, I mean, it's it's a pretty extraordinary thing to to say having won a Connacht title for the first time in eight years that we've gone backwards this year. Is that what people were saying afterwards? Like it was totally devalued? Oh, well, I mean, I don't know how it, it could be anything other. I mean, I mean they're on, they're on the flip side then, it's like, well, we won a Connacht title and we got to play in Crow Park. I mean, I'd have snapped your hand off for that. Uh, but, you know, that's not actually what happened. Was What happened was we won a Connacht title and then we got absolutely humiliated by... 
Tipperary. That's, and if, if you'd been offered that at the start of the year, would you have taken that? This I'm is the point as well. Sure. It wasn't as though it was... And in fairness, we had predicted that this could be a rare sort of shootout, that you could get this ridiculously high-scoring game that one team ends up winning by a point or two. Mm. Uh, there, there was one team involved in a shootout, all right. Yeah. Um, but, no, uh, like, uh, but this is the issue, the tip walloped Galway. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, if, uh, like a lot of people were saying, I think Galway will win, I think it'll be very, very close. I mean, it's not actually the case that it's a humiliation because it was Tipperary or... I mean, the humiliating part is that the opposition that we were playing could have scored eight goals. Mm. That they that Tipperary hammered Galway and they got one point in the last 20 minutes of football. Like, that's that's the humiliation. I mean, the the, the idea that losing to Tipperary it was, it was a humiliation 10 years ago. I mean, Tipperary are a good team. I still think, you know, they're... They pinpointed very specific weaknesses in the Galway team that were there to be exploited. They did that, and I, you know, I, I can't see them beating Mayo or Tyrone. And I, to be honest, I see either of those two teams beating Tipperary by seven or eight points in the Ireland semi-final. To be honest, but I mean that, that like that doesn't take away from the fact that they that what they did on on Sunday was, you know, like an absolutely brilliant performance. And and it's it's. To say it's two separate things, Goldwyn's humiliation and Tipperary's achievement are actually, you know, the the, the Tipperary's achievement in getting to an Lawrence semi-final is absolutely brilliant. Goldwyn's humiliation stems from the fact that they didn't play at all, and it was a bit of a shambles. Do you applaud Murph's humility and candor this morning? Then? Um, I didn't notice him. I didn't notice any humility, humility from him. Not half enough. <laughs> 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 I mean. Come on. What are you, what are you looking for? It's a bit more than that. like. No, I mean, if you're asking me to offer up a further mea culpa, I mean, what what can I say? What was, can I, I mean, I was sitting there at home. I was doing a little bit of You're tweeting me, by the way, trolling me, which was nice. I was doing, I was doing a little bit of work and all I could hear was this, these uh, constant screams. You, from, you live from beside Crow Park. Park for, yeah, not, not too far away. So you can, you can hear when there's a cheer or like when mm. the referee... When the referee um, displeases one or other set of fans, but all I could hear was all this almost continuous roar. You know what I actually thought had happened? I thought maybe there was a dog on the pitch, <laughs> or a streaker. I thought there was a, there was a dog that was running around the pitch evading capture. The crowd sounded so happy, and the, yep. the roar went on for so long that I thought, "What is going on?" I, I almost went in to turn on the TV, but I was I was just I had this yep. work to finish. Yep. I'm going to say you're, it was probably around uh, around five o'clock. So there is like the 15 minute spell at the start of the second half, which I can only imagine as a Tipperary football fan is as close to heaven on earth. It's a sort of transcendent ecstasy that uh, that you could only have, have dreamed of. This nonstop wave. Just after wave every single attack that they had was a goal or should have been a goal for about a 15 minute period. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Quirk and Ushi McConville are ready to go. We'll get to Mike, but Ushi, you're in studio with us. How are you? Oh, good morning. The biggest fairy tale story of maybe of the decade in, in, with Tip. Uh, Mega probably going to be sold out, double bill at Croke Park next Saturday. So all is right with the Gaelic Football Championship in 2016. Yeah. What, a, what a sport we have in this great country. You obviously weren't in Croke Park at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to this weekend. And at the same time, you know, if you take a step back from it, there could be two comfortable wins this weekend for, like, I think, Tyrone and Dublin. Um, from what I've seen over the last number of weeks, the Connor Championship, the old form has certainly not been franked over the last <laughs> couple of weeks. We'll get to that in a minute, Muff, but, uh, you know, you have to question 
just where me and we're at, really. You know, and look, a throne still have a, a bit to prove, but Jesus, if Mayo play anything like they've played over the last number of weeks, uh, both tactically and just the form of the individuals that they have. When I played inter-county football, um, my role was always very succinct, even though it changed over many years. Even down to 2008 when my role was getting splinters in my ass sitting on the bench. <laughs> but I knew what my role was. You know, all that time. I do believe that there's play- players on that male team who don't know exactly what their role is. And going into Crow Park in a quarter final against Tyrone. Um, a team who me- definitely <laughs> will know, each of them will know in detail what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and that's something that they have defined really in the last 18 months that everybody knows their role. And I told you, you know, um, I'm not sure if it was the last day it was in or the time before that. The day that Tyrone played Cavan, the the level of communication that was going on on the field, from Pete Donnelly on the sideline, from uh, Horsch and um, Mickey Hart on the other sideline, the communication that they have, um, the level of... of uh, of expectation and the pride that they seem to have now in in uh, in, def- in defending, but not only defending, but being able to tra- transition into attack. And nobody does a better right now than they do. I'm sure Mayo have pride in what they're doing as well. Oh uh, no, I definitely think they have pride. There's absolutely no doubt about it. They have a huge amount of pride in what they're doing. So what was wrong with what you saw from them at the weekend? Then why are you so pessimistic about them? They're just they're just so open. Um, I, I just think that it's a it's. It's almost like playing from memory, or it's almost like uh, the majority of it is off the cuff, but not in a good way. Does that, does that make any sense? I think so, yeah, yeah. Um, all, all of the players that you're talking about being confused about their roles happen to also be their best players. Yeah. Which is, that's the big problem. That you see Aidan O'Shea, Killian O'Connor, Lee Keegan, Kevin McLaughlin, Keith Higgins. All five, they're the five guys I, yeah. I think that you're talking about. Uh, and none of them, they all seem to be doing, trying to do too much, and as a result, not having a real enough of an impact on the on the game in the areas that they're good at. Oh, I think Higgins is is the one player in their team who has the noose and and just that bit of know how to play that um, to play that sweeper system. Mm-hmm. And I think um, you know you look at Kerry at the weekend. Mark O'Shea is probably a player who can play that, you know, that um, that sweeper role for Kerry. But there's just not Mayo just don't have enough. Um, they don't have those roles defined enough. You know, even something simple like an outlet ball. They don't really have it. If Dermot O'Connor isn't getting every single ball, getting it into the full forward line, and then supporting that full forward line, they don't have an outlet ball. You know, and it's and it's amazing to try to use Aidan O'Shea as that for for a number of times at the weekend. Then he found himself drifting more into defence, picking up ball, carrying it into the tackle. To continuously carry it into the tackle at this level, carry it into the tackle, you get absolutely destroyed. Well, you get destroyed if you continuously do it, yeah. and if you're if it's not just one individual that's doing it. I mean, you know, you watch it an under-12 team or another 14 team, there's always one big monster. He's able to carry the ball. Mike, he's able to carry the ball. <laughs> <laughs> he's able to carry the ball through individuals and, and knock them out of the way. 
you watch as that 14 year old gets to 18 and 19 and he tries to do that at senior level I've seen that happen he tries to do that at senior level it doesn't happen it's almost like you know, there's still a bit of that need no Shea and Seamus O'Shea and these boys. Well, Oshin, fair play to you for starting with Mayo. I did have Tip Galway here, but obviously you're treading gently with Mayo <laughs> this morning. We, we, we don't know. We, we, we can get stuck into it. Mike, did it? Uh, we've been talking a bit about this already, but did it strike you that Tip seemed to have this attitude about them during the game, even after the game, the way they were talking? Uh, they seemed to be almost uh, take it as a personal affront that people were even talking about this being a shock that they had every right to go and beat Galway and they pretty much played like that as well. They played like they were annoyed almost. It's it's the story this summer, isn't it? It's just, no, I don't know where, where they're getting that kind of a vibe that, that they should be beating Galway. I mean, they haven't they haven't beaten anybody of note for, for a number of years and they're down so many bodies and we all know we all know their story. It's, it's well, like, well, well, they beat Cork and Derry this year, so there's no reason this, why, why this they shouldn't This year I'm Galway. talking about, I mean, yeah. I mean, up to the point they, they beat Cork and then they rolled over to Kerry again to a 10-point defeat in the Munster final and you're thinking, OK, you're, you're crying out looking for respect and looking for credit and looking for all this stuff for your players, but... But you you have to go and you know respect isn't something that you you ask for and and oh people are going to start you you have to go and, and earn that with your performances and with your wins and 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 now they've they've done that by beating Derry I, I was really impressed with their win over over Derry the fact that Derry kind of came at them and in the last couple of minutes that it looked like they were going to come back and and turn them over but they actually they showed serious character and composure and skill you know with Sweeney kicking those couple of late scores and they just took that into took that into into the Galway game and I mean Galway Galway were just you know like they didn't know what was what, what was hitting them and I, I must say no, I, I didn't think I didn't think Tipperary could put could put I thought I thought Tipperary might beat him but I didn't think they'd put him to the sword the way they did and you know the, the craziest craziest thing about the whole story about Tipperary is you wake up now on Monday morning and you say could Tipperary actually get a result over Mayo or Tyrone in an All-Ireland semi-final and, and you're not dismissing that possibility out of hand completely, which which to me means I, I probably need to see a doctor or something. But that's <laughs> that's where they've got to already this year. It's a, it's an incredible story. Yeah, as, and the other incredible thing about it was, more f- in particular, is that you you I know you were at the game. Sure, it was very yeah. painful for you to watch. It was, but <laughs> but um, Tipperary should have won that game by twenty five yeah. points. You know, because they had that many opportunities, I think the I think the one thing that saved Gala was that that goal opportunity that Quinn Levin had just after half time that that didn't go in because I think if that had went in, the floodgates would have absolutely opened. Yeah. And the thing about you know at half time, Coma getting the the goal before half time, you're thinking, all right, yeah, there's going to be a complete change now. You know, Gala are going to come out and they're going to change things. Gala didn't really change things. In any respect, I mean, they were still first sub after forty-seven minutes. First three substitutes were forwards. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I that's that is a, and as you say, like to to what you're saying, Tipperary got one point in the last twenty minutes of football. Yeah, in the game. But I suppose so, I mean, it, 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 the, the fact that they were forwards is that not just because they were indicative of the fact they were chasing the game? You tend to well, I mean. The full back line was getting absolutely eviscerated under a high ball. So you need to and do something have, about that first of all. We have a six foot before. two, foot six foot three full back with pedigree. Who, in fairness, his his form has dipped. Certainly, I mean, he's on in the latter stages of his career. But Finian Hanley was an obvious substitution to make yeah. after twenty minutes. I mean, the the hands that Quinn Levin and Sweeney have, and you know, you're you really are anxious not to take too much away from Tipperary here because what yeah. they did was they saw areas of weakness in the Gola team that say Gola football Gola football fans would have seen in May. Before the Mayo game, yeah. they would have said, 
our midfield is a little is a little suspect against top quality opposition. Like they they're good footballers, but there's still a doubt there over how good they really are. And our full back line is really inexperienced, and our goalkeeper is really inexperienced. And Tipperary just went out, went after that. As you said, they paid absolutely no attention to the Connacht Championship, which is, in fairness, I think something that we all have to now do, given how badly Roscommon and Mayo have done subsequent to that. Um, and they, they, they looked at it and said, right, what have these guys actually done if you disregard the Connacht Championship this year? And the answer was not a whole lot. And, I, the, and the, full, the full back line, the weakness in the full back line was there for, for Tipperary to exploit. And, you know, Tipperary obviously backed their two midfielders to be able to win the ball. The second Tipper, the Tipperary midfield started winning the ball, it was game over, ball burst. And, like, you know the way everybody talks about the freedom that they play with? And there is, a, you know, that certain amount of freedom, but there's no accident that... I thought, they were, I thought actually, much, much less the freedom, I thought it was a brilliant coaching performance yeah. by Liam Kearns. Like I, absolutely I, brilliant. I, I agree. And when the, it looked as if the midfield maybe were, were weakening a wee bit, take the two boys out to the end lane, put Cunliven up the middle and bomb the ball straight up the middle, and he win, he's able to go out there and win primary possession. When they really, you know, when you could say that Galway maybe were on the front foot a little bit, okay, they weren't getting the scores to get back into the game, but Cunliven just to come out to the middle of the field, win that ball, you know, and get it in the full forward. Yeah, that, it's interesting, Mike, because. Uh, both Liam Cairns and some of his players have been talking since and uh, they seem to reference quite a lot they talk about the amount of work they had done on Galway in advance the amount of video work and, and all the work they're going to do uh, ahead of their semi-final now I mean I would have thought at the very top level of inter-county football that would be a given but you watch a lot of teams and it doesn't look like they actually have a plan for the opponents it looks like they have a way of playing and they stick rigidly to that Did, are Tip doing a little bit more work in that regard? I, I mean you, you know you were talking about Mayo earlier I, and and I disagree maybe what what Oshim was saying. I I think that Mayo are gone completely the other way from playing off the cuff. I think they're gone completely systematic and 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 trying to put guys that are, are squares into round holes like Kevin McLaughlin as a sweeper. And they've gone completely completely obsessed with structure and with with you know systems and sweep. And and I, I don't think it suits their their the way they play. And I I just think Tipperary keep it really simple. You know in terms of their structure. Yeah, they, they looked at Galway and they're, the way they I mean, Galway have nothing overly complicated in the you know in the, in the way they play the game. They played it like like the game was played twenty years ago. They bang the ball out the middle. They get the ball into the guys as quickly. There's no real you know um, tactical genius behind the way that Galway set up or the way they play. So I, I you know maybe they were all very ineptly you know where where they you know really broke them down and looked at their strengths and weaknesses. I don't think it was it was that difficult to analyse Galway to be honest. But I still. Just think they, they 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 are playing with that kind of just I I I think it's confidence more than freedom. You know, you they're playing Brian Fox and they've done it for every game they've played so far against Cork and against Kerry and all the way up. Fox drops from wing forward as a, as a as a sweeper and he does it you know pretty well without getting any huge fanfare. And and guys like Atchison and. I, I, just the biggest difference with this with this Tipperary team that that I've seen against, and I've played against enough Tipperary teams who huffed and puffed their way through championship games and got close, and were these guys have real real quality in their attacking third. Like they're they're mm. capable of putting a ball over the bar or, or taking goals. And and Tipperary teams of the last ten years are are before that even with Declan Brown, they never had that kind of one or two or three guys that actually have that quality now to hurt you on the scoreboard. They were always competitive and they were always tough, but they never had that real quality. Whereas these guys, I'm telling you, are just 
like Sweeney, I, I'm so impressed with this guy, Sweeney. He's just, he looks so smooth when he's moving around the place. He doesn't look like he should be quick. He's so gangly. But he's never beaten to a ball. You know, Quinlevin the same. You know, when, like Galway got after a good start the last day, it shouldn't be forgotten. And, and they went up four points to one. And you're thinking, okay, this is going to really test these Tipperary boys now. Are, are they really about it? And, and then Quinlevin comes up with a great goal and settles them and they, and they drive on. They just, they have more quality up front, I think, than, than you know, than they've ever had, to be honest, you know. Yeah, not only are they have the quality, they've got size as well. The, the likes of Sweetie and Quinlivan, yeah. Quinn, they're not they're not just finishers; they're bloody big lads as well, which sort of helps and, and gives you options up there. One of the major differences that I've seen is that whenever that ball, when you play the way that Tipperary play, it has to stick in the full forward line, and you hear that from from a lot of coaches. If if you're playing in a certain way, it must stick in that full forward line. Once it goes in there, it must stick, and. When you play in Crow Park Home, it's hard to believe, but it's a completely different game than when you're playing in provincial uh, grounds. You have so much more room, there's so much more space for Galway would have found that there was so much more space that they had to cover off, regardless of how many players they got back. And when you get those players back, you know, if if you don't have you know if you don't have players that are willing to, you know, get tackles in, if you've got a player who who the majority of the time through the championship has had one, two, and three players backing them up. They still had that the weekend, but uh, Quinn Levin um, and Sweeney had a had a lot more room, you know, to operate in. And when you give players like that that little bit of space, they have the quality because they're not thinking too much about it. And you know, Mike's probably right in that. You know what I said about about Mayo. Well, then let's let me put it a different way. Then Mayo are playing in a way that. Whenever they go forward, I don't know, and I believe that they don't know what their next move is. So whether they're overthinking it or not thinking enough about yeah. it, they, they yeah. still don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I, I believe so. <clears throat> and the one thing you'll hear for the rest of the week now, now is uh, I think Aidan O'Shea should be putting uh, at full forward. Square, yeah. yeah, I think Michael Murphy should be putting the edge of the square and bomb the ball into the them. Believe me, if, if both <laughs> both of those teams do that, they will get absolutely hosed at the weekend. All right, let's talk Donegal, Mike. And I have to say, there have been times in the last couple of years, I might as well admit this on air, that I, I've kind this of wondered... It's a strange time for you to decide to admit this. <laughs> I've sometimes <laughs> wondered what all the fuss is about with Paddy McBrady. <laughs> uh, obviously a talented player, but one who... I, so, I, I don't know, there's, there's, there are certain times I've thought he's not necessarily clinical enough and doesn't score as heavily as his reputation would suggest why I'm bringing this up now I don't know this is too self-deprecating but it was he was unbe- absolutely unbelievable at the weekend yeah I mean he was he was out of out of this world really I mean he he doesn't give you he doesn't give him that every every game you know obviously and it, and if he does Donegal become a much much more dangerous proposition than than I think they are I mean realistically you know Dublin Dublin should win that game but if this guy, if this guy can take that kind of form, now obviously he's not going to maybe get the same space and the same freedom that he had last weekend. But if he can take that kind of form in there, and they can get Michael Murphy to start chipping in with a couple of scores, who's really, you know, he's he's probably struggling a little bit. I know he's doing so much work all over the field, and he's he's making other guys better. But he, you know, he needs to he needs to get back to to being a little bit of a scorer more so than he has been in the last couple of games again. You know, more so than he has been this season really. But. I I just I'm not sold on Donegal, you know. I, I I think people are making out that this game is going to be, you know, that they could possibly turn Dublin over. I'm I'm not in that camp. I I I just think Dublin are, you know, Dublin are cruising away. It's probably going to be a rough 20 minutes to open up the game. A little bit rusty, having not played the game in a while, not having a real tough championship game all year. 
you know, and I, I just don't see I just don't see Donegal having having the type of weapons that are going to really hurt him over probably eighty minutes. You know. Yeah, I think in principle I I agree with you, Mike. But I would say this: that much worse teams than Donegal have gone in at half time, a couple of points down, one or two points down against Dublin, and that if Donegal were to turn that into a sort of three or four point advantage at half time maybe Donegal are in a better I'm just trying to construct an argument here more so than <laughs> but Donegal are in a much better position to come up with something for the second half I mean what we've seen in these games that Dublin have been featured in is a team having a plan for the first half and then getting completely destroyed in the second half is there is there not a chance that Donegal change that one point deficit into a maybe a two or three point lead for them at half time and then have something to really ask a few questions of this uh, this Dublin team and capitalise on the fact that they haven't played a game for five months, four months. Listen, listen. If 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 Tipperary can be in the All Ireland semi final, anything can happen. Yeah. You know, like Donegal. Like I was at the league semi final. Was in semi final yet? Yeah, Dublin played. Dublin played uh, mm. Donegal this year, and you know, I, I was kind of saying, okay, they, they, they'll really ask questions about them now. Let's see what they they bring to it. And, and and they just they couldn't get a hand on them. They, they you know they were chasing shadows. And not, I, fair enough, Donegal are probably improved now after the Ulster Championship. But I I, I just I, I don't see it. I think I think Dublin are so prepared now for what Donegal are going to bring to the party. They're going to you know they're they're anticipating that Donegal are going to bring thirteen men behind the ball. And Dublin have just such composure and such footballers in in their front. Everybody in their fifteen players really, that that kind of stuff just doesn't bother them anymore unless you're able to really really hurt them on a quick counter and 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 put the ball over the bar going the other way. I I just I think they're so so prepared for what they'll face against Donegal that it may be ugly for a while, but eventually they'll they'll grind them down with their they've too many weapons they've just too many weapons for what Donegal has unless McBrearty goes absolutely nuts again <laughs> and kicks about sixteen points. You know I I don't see how they're going to put them under under real real pressure to well, get away. Yeah, well then I'll be convinced if McBrearty scores sixteen <laughs> points as long as ten or twelve of them are from play, I'll be truly convinced by Paddy McBrearty's quality. But uh, yeah, it is a fair point I think that. Donegal are going to need to bring more than just a defensive setup. And Jim McGuinness was saying in the Irish Times today, he thinks they do have a shot, but that they, they can't do this 13 men behind the ball. You're smiling already. Jim McGuinness is advocating an attacking strategy from Donegal. What, yeah. What's, what's yeah. with the reaction? I, I actually, the, the, well, the thing, well, it's, it's just rich coming from Jim McGuinness. Uh, but I, I think Dublin are a lot more stubborn than they used to be. Uh, and Jim Gavin started this, if you remember, the night that. Uh, they played Derry a number of years ago in the league, and it was it wasn't a pretty game. But Dublin were delighted to win that game in the way that they won it because they just matched up with Derry, and that's exactly what they do at the weekend. If Donegal want to play thirteen behind the ball, Dublin will do the same. But watch how you know they get up the field, you know, differently to Duny- the way Donegal get up the field. Now, if we're talking about Donegal three years ago, four years ago. You know they'll give them all they want. You know as far as uh, physicality and all those things, but that just hasn't happened for Donegal this year. Uh, you know for them to turn it around, they closed it out well though against Cork, given that they were in a bit of bother. Well, Cork, I have to say, Cork gave them a real hand. You know in in closing it out because there's no way they were going to get a score in the last twenty minutes when it really meant something. Like you know, mm. um, but it was about a twenty-five minute period with Cork not scoring. Up, up until injury time. Yeah, there was, and and uh, Cork had a great opportunity at the weekend to win that game. Mm. A brilliant. Op- let's not. Let's not. We do a different show on 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 the Cork thing, a special. <laughs> um, but 
uh, Donegal, yeah, they did well to close that game out. They did well to get to get the win. The thing that I've seen is when the backs have been the wall to the wall, like the first Monaghan game, the second Monaghan game they come out, I thought, you know, they look really, really sharp, look really, really physical, they look really, really up for the game. Uh, I think the problem they have this weekend is that, you know, Dublin are gonna be chomping at the bit for this game. Mm. I think this is a game that Dublin really, really want. I mean, they've been stuttering and stammering through the season. That's not good. Players don't like that. Players want a real test. This is the one that Ken Early has been demanding all season. Yeah, as you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's gonna he's he's gonna get it for a half maybe at the weekend. You know, and and that's something that this Dublin team need. They need a game that they can get their teeth into. And when when um, when Donegal arrive, they will be massively up for it. But I just think it's this sort of challenge is has just about passed this Donegal team by. Mike, I think Kerry need a Donegal-shaped challenge at some point. It's a, is it a slightly surreal atmosphere in the county at the moment? We're into August now, and there's just not much... Nothing has nothing happened. Has happened. <laughs> <laughs> For all summer. Nothing has happened, yeah. I mean, like, since the league final against against Dublin, um, like, yeah, obviously it's, well, Clare, Tipperary and Clare. And it's, it's, and it's just another four weeks now until, until, a, until a semi-final, probably against Dublin, um, and it, it's just—it's been such a boring, boring year for for Kerry football. You know, now if we be Dublin, that'll probably all change. But it's just—it's—I don't—it's really, really. I know we, and I'm not getting into structures and changing the whole thing, and you know. But this this scenario, waiting four—I don't care who you're playing. It's four weeks to a game is just complete and utter monotony and drudgery for players and supporters it it's 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 so so hard to deal with and you look at you look at these teams coming through the qualifiers and they're playing games playing games i read something by you know darren sullivan i think this morning was interviewed somewhere and he he was saying about how how he really just prefers the league now so much more because you're playing a big team every week every you know somebody different it's a top team and it's just bang bang, and you're you're out, you're out every week. Whereas this four week stuff, I mean, they go down. They have a few beers on Sunday night. They're training Tuesday. They don't know who they're playing until the following weekend, and even another three weeks after you find that out. I mean, it's just it's 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 all uh, it's all wrong. No, that's not clear. Tipperary's fault. They've they've probably punched above their weight. And they deserve where they got to. You know, particularly clear in, in that quarterfinal against Kerry. But it was unfortunate that they had to play Kerry again. It would have been great to see some kind of an open draw where they didn't have to have to meet the same team they'd already played in the province. They could have played somebody else and at least given Kerry a different angle as well. But uh, it's just been absolute monotony in Kerry this year. And I can't wait for the love of God to get to the semi-final against Dublin and see how we get on. All right, well, listen, we got right to the end of the conversation before mentioning championship structures this week. It's, it's a new <laughs> record. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much. Oshin, brilliant thanks stuff. Thanks, Sean. Okay, guys. The Murph and Mackey for most welcome Irishman of the year goes to Owen McDevitt. Owen, 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 Owen McDevitt from Ireland's second captain show. All up in the into the web. Owen McDevitt worldwide. Second captains. Those guys are like, those guys are like family to me, man. Owen McDevitt. This is Locke. The coolest song I ever heard in my whole life. Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser. This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs> All right. They said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. Worldwide. The new world federator of the championship. Owen McDevitt.
one, McDevitt? To say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at, is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. A lot has been made of the fact that the extra layer of fairy tale on this Tipperary story this season, Murph, and that is that nobody's expecting to do anything, despite the fact they've had underage success, because a lot of those successful underage players aren't around this season for various reasons. Is that there are a few players who are missing from the squad, uh, a couple abroad, uh, a couple playing hurling, which is obviously a huge draw in the county. And the most high profile is Colin O'Reardon, who had sort of developed into one of the best footballers around over the last couple of years. Uh, he was speaking about this. He's, he's over in Australia. He's with yeah, the he's Swans. with the Sydney Swans. So yeah. that's why he's uh, decided to, why he decided to opt out. I mean, he was uh, captain of the under-21 team last year that won the Munster title. So he's been absolutely key to all of the underage success, uh, but has now missed out on, you know, the sweetest, uh, the sweetest moment of, of all. But um, yeah, he was talking about how he'd set his alarm and, you know, got up at 1am in the morning, watched it in bed on his laptop. This in the examiner today. Yeah, yeah and um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing. The final whistle blew and honestly, tears started rolling down my face. Uh, I was sitting at home yesterday, which probably wasn't the best thing, staring at the ceiling and thinking, what were the chances? Uh, to be honest with you, it was the best draw we could have got. Uh, yeah, I mean, just that idea that, I mean, okay, I'm obviously happy, but... You know, how happy am I? What are the chances, I'd say, are the words going through the play, the heads of every one of those players who isn't available yeah. this year, who potentially could have been available? you think the strangest things. I'd go as far as to say that I was the happiest man in the world when I saw the game, but then you start ser- staring at the ceiling, it dawns on you that you grew up with these lads and that you'd love to be there. It wasn't easy. I did shed a few tears and I have no problem saying that. A weird kind of emotion, so happy and to be honest, sad at the same time. And, yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone would be surprised by that. No. Um, you know, and I think I think maybe it's even it's it's more complicated for him than it is for the guys, you know, in America playing with you know a club team over there. I mean, I just think those guys, <laughs> you know, like that's that's the real opportunity missed. I mean, Conor Reardon is over there taking he's uh, taking a professional a, sports yeah, person. Yeah, chance that, you know he's going for an opportunity of his own uh, that not many players. Yeah, we had this. Co- yeah, but with those guys in New York or in America or whatever, we did have that conversation about uh, and with Johnny Glynn, yeah. who was leaving, and he was leaving a panel who would be about the third favourites to win that competition. So if you rewind back to the start of the year when these lads made the decision, it is pretty understandable. Yeah, it, it's yeah. just got to be oh, a no, bit it, emotional it, at the same time. It is actually, yeah, it is definitely understandable. And in a way, what Johnny Glynn was saying was, out of 10 years of a chance to do this. You know, and like that's kind of why that's, that, that is why I would always give it give him a more of a free pass in ways, you know, because he's always going to have a chance. So he's going to come back. He's going to try and make the goal team. The goal team should be competitive for the next seven or eight. The Tipperary guys, you know, with with all due respect, how many more Ireland semi-finals are they going to get? That's you know, that's the yeah. But again, that's not that's not the way they were thinking at the start of the year. Yeah, I don't, I don't think all, even the players all, who are yeah. on the panel. Thought all I'm saying is, yeah, the basically Johnny Glenn when he when he's thinking about it. He can make an accommodation. The Tipperary players probably don't have that accommodation to make in their own heads. All right, Carl Frampton produced the performance of his life on the biggest night of his career in New York on Sunday to win the WBA World Featherweight title. Donald McRae was there to see it and described the fight as a reminder of why I fell in love with boxing all those years ago. It was that good, Donald? It was fantastic. You know, boxing uh, can be a bit up and down, topsy-turvy, and there are nights when it's either a fiasco 
deadly dull or huge controversy. <laughs> and this last Saturday night was actually the antithesis of all those things. It had the best of boxing about it. The two fighters fought a magnificent fight. And just as people were so good together. So um, it was one of those where you came away feeling actually honoured to have been there and not slightly soiled and tainted, which was a, a nice change. Yeah. Did you join in the celebrations in Annie Moore's bar in Manhattan? Uh, drinks were on Carl, according to the footage. Yeah. Well, you know, initially I was talking to Carl beforehand. I said, oh, well, you're going to win and Saturday night's going to be a huge night. And he sort of said, oh, I doubt it because... You know, whatever happens, I'll have to see the doctor, do the media. It was exactly that. Um, I mean, we left um, the venue. It was well after 2 o'clock, and people were just absolutely exhausted. But then on Sunday at sort of 1 o'clock, um, he'd invited uh, whoever had come over to support him to come to Eddie Moore's to buy them a pint, typical of Carl. <laughs> but also typical of Carl, once he got there... Um, I just noticed he slipped over to the bar woman and just gave his card and sort of said the whole afternoon is on me. So that meant not just one pint for each person, but as many pints or whatever else they were consuming, which I think, again, just summed up Carl. He was just so happy to pay back his fans in, in liquor in, and, in, and just to thank them personally. Yeah, I don't know if uh, he has the final bill for that yet. I'm sure he does. At one point, he did say to me, mm, might be skint in the morning. And, <laughs> but I think he got paid quite well the night before, so hopefully he, he could pay it off. So you had great access. You were in the dressing room beforehand and everything, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I've been known Carl for quite a long time and they were kind enough to let me come in and that's always a moment where you feel actually so privileged if a fighter says to you, you can be with them before the fight. And in that last, I mean I was with them I think about 80 minutes or so and especially in the last 30 minutes, suddenly all the um, danger and the foreboding that is embedded in boxing comes to the surface and um, it was a powerful time for me to and I've done it before but I think this one because I'm quite emotionally attached to that whole camp mm. I felt even more nervous but um, it was such an insight into what happens um, within boxing just before a major fight What did happen? How did he deal with that sense of foreboding? Because he certainly looked calm when he got out there Yeah, he, it, was a, it was quiet um, his Carl always loves old soul music so we had Jackie Wilson and Sam Cooke Otis Redding, all that kind of stuff playing this gentle sort of soulful music, but um, Carl is, has his hands bandaged, first wrapped, um, and then he puts the gloves on, and then he starts to shadow box. And when the pads come out, and Shane McGuigan, who's in his corner, is holding the pads up, and you hear the punches flying into those pads, and Carl is making these kind of echoing noises, suddenly so you think, oh, this is actually not a game. This is something um, where people can actually be damaged. Um, but he, he was nervous, there was no doubt about it, because this was the biggest fight of his life. Um, but Shane, who's younger than him, Carl's 29, I think Shane's about 27, he exudes such composure and such calm, and I think that kept the whole atmosphere fairly level. But each time the door opened, you could hear the sound of the 9,000 people going ballistic when the fight before Carl, Mikey Garcia, which we didn't know what was happening, but we could hear whatever... Uh, Mikey Garcia knocked down his opponent and we'd been told that after that fight ended, Carl had seven minutes to to make the walk. Um, so, and suddenly the fight was over and um, Carl had to you know, just get going and, and there was such intensity then and the last moment for me sort of will stay in my head forever because 
there was this, just this little knock on the door, and this official said, it's time, gentlemen. And for me, just as an observer, I was thinking, shoof, <laughs> that call was so, sounded ominous. And, um, and then Carl went out and fought an amazing fight and won. He did. You mentioned Shane McGuigan there. And it's mm. funny, because of the profile of Barry McGuigan, mm. he's the one we tend to focus on, the part of the camp. It's strange. You don't normally talk that much about the fighter's manager or promoter uh, over and above the trainer. But certainly Frampton afterwards is very keen to stress how brilliant uh, a trainer yeah, Shane McGuigan is. Before mm. the fight, or the afternoon before the fight, I'd spoken to Shane. I was with Carl and Shane and Barry McGuigan in the hotel, which was a good time just to talk to them about how they were feeling. And Sh- I knew it was going to be such a close fight, but I started to believe Carl was definitely going to win because Shane told me how the fight was going to unfold, and he'd been watching tape so closely. And it, it turned out to be the exact fight he expected for the except for the few times when Carl perhaps fought more with his heart than his head but Shane is such an analytical and knowledgeable young trainer and he is key to Carl's success the atmosphere in the arena looked absolutely amazing I know Santa Cruz afterwards in his post-fight interview said that he reckons that actually that influenced the judges somewhat that there was so much support for every Frampton punch was there, was there anything in that do you think? Um, I think well I, I scored the fight that Carl won um, not not comfortably, but I think it was a clear-cut win for him. But yes, they might, the judges could be swayed because whenever you know Carl landed, the place went ballistic, and um, that can influence judges. But I still think it was a clear um, decision for Carl. But I think Santa Cruz, you know, at the way in the day before, um, which shows I know less about boxing than Carl and the Briggins because Santa Cruz was just smiling at all the Belfast fans and fans from Dublin, north and south of Ireland were there just chanting Carl's name and shouting, who are you, to, to Leo. And Leo was just, I thought he looked chilled out. But the McGuigans and Carl actually said that smile made them feel he was actually a bit spooked by the whole thing. Really, yeah? Yeah, which I, was not the way I'd seen it, but I, I bowed to their, their, their knowledge. And certainly I think um, the atmosphere lifted Carl. Um, and whether it had any effect on Santa Cruz, I don't know. But um, it was an, an amazing atmosphere. Barry McGuigan was caught up in it, as always. And he certainly seemed to be throwing every punch with Carl in there and, and feeding it afterwards. It's this amazing photograph that a lot of people have seen since then. It's just the moment that the decision is announced and the emotion on McGuigan's face is as telling as anything, I think. Well, you know, uh, he has, I spoke to his wife, um, you know, soon after the fight, and she just said to me, you know, this has been 26 years in the making because it took him almost 20 years before he decided to choose a fighter because he, he knew that the first fight he worked with, he wanted to be someone exceptional. So he bided his time and he's a clever man and he waited until he saw Carl Frampton and not only technically uh, he saw him as an amateur but he actually felt his style would be so suited to the professional um, business but also he wanted someone who had a caliber of personality that could lift him beyond just being another fighter and Carl certainly has that so I think there's decades worth of emotion in that and just putting that fight together there were a lot of behind the scenes difficulties for them as they always are in boxing and he's invested hugely emotionally his whole family's involved and hugely financially and more than anything and this is not just a glib uh, comment he actually cares hugely about Carl so he wanted him to be safe first and foremost and secondly for him to get that win meant so much to all of them so yeah it was quite an emotional night it certainly was. What kind of status do you think Frampton can gain within the sport now, though? I think a 
huge amount. I mean, it was fascinating for me on the outside off. This was now at like sort of 1.30 in the morning. He's been with the doctor a long time, and he goes out to meet the media, and um, all the U.S. sort of media were there. And there were some weird guys, or one guy in a sailor's uh, uniform, and I thought that showed how uh, together Carl was because he managed to answer all the sailors' questions without uh, bursting out laughing, and he sort of charmed them utterly. And you could just sense the enthusiasm for Frampton amongst sort of the U.S. media. And they're all saying, well, you're coming back to... Uh, New York, are you going to be in Vegas? And Carl was saying, well, I want to fight at home, clearly, but I love New York. Vegas is a possibility. And they're all, uh, you know, talking amongst those journalists, they all see him now as sort of one of the top five pound-for-pound fighters. So I think it's opened up a lot of doors for him. Yeah, it's brave. I think we're all very excited to see what happens next. Just lastly, we spoke to Lenny Abramson on the radio on a radio show a couple of weeks back. Yeah, I know, he, I yeah, yeah, and he was heading along to uh, get an insight into the world of professional boxing. I presume he enjoyed it. He did, uh, and I said to him afterwards, Lenny, it's not always this good um, <laughs> because, as we said earlier, it can be a bit of a fiasco. But he was actually blown away, and um, I think he he loved it. So I think more than ever, hopefully, he's keen to. Um, move on with, with the next film. Yeah, yeah, can't wait for that one. Listen, Donald Cray, always great to chat to you. Glad you enjoyed the night so much and thanks for talking. Thanks so much, as always. I think, uh, forget about that moment I talked about at the start of the show when the fighters are waiting for the scores to be read out. I think I want to be in the dressing room before a fight. That's where the real suspense is. Incredible description there of just what goes on and being in yeah. a privileged position. Donald was uh, in that kind of role as well uh, during Dark Trade. I think it was James Tony in particular, uh, the great boxer of the 90s who he spent quite a lot of time with. But certainly one or two fighters, he, he, I remember him writing about it back then, about that. Th- those few minutes before they go out to the battle, musical choices were the musical choices were quite interesting, weren't they? I mean, you kind of are 
thinking that to get into the frame of mind required to punch someone in the head repeatedly for 12 rounds, you need something a little, you know, darker than Otis Redding. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, like that's, yeah, that's, what, uh, that's what Frampton was going for. Just to explain the question I asked there about Lenny Abramson, in case people are wondering what the hell is going on there, we interviewed Lenny, the great film director, uh, a couple of weeks ago on Second Captain Sunday, our Radio 1 show, about his... Essentially, he's gotten the rights from Donald to do the movie version of the book, ba- or do a movie based on the book A Man's World. This is the story of Emil Griffith, the gay boxer from the 60s and 70s who killed an opponent in the ring after he'd been taunted about his sexuality by that opponent. It was a story we covered quite extensively on the podcast last year. It was an absolutely brilliant book. So Lenny is trying to get into the boxing world because he's going to do this movie and he was invited along or managed to get himself along to the Frampton fight and seriously enjoyed it by the uh, sound of what Donald was saying there and by some of his tweets. Ken, you can tell us now what's coming up in today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's... Yeah. (laughs) They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I have to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them. What are you doing down here, you shiny man? Well, Owen, we are going to talk a little bit about um, no respect, no respect. That's what uh, Tobias Schweinsteiger says uh, of uh, the treatment of his his brother Bastian. Yeah, Jose Mourinho Frozen out a little bit by Jose. (laughs) Booted out. Booted. Less freezing, more booting. Yeah. Full on banished. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, um, that situation, and uh, various other things that are are going on. There's no shortage of things happening in this big football world. Just one more story I wanted to mention before we go, and that was written by Donald McRae's Guardian colleague, in fact, Owen Gibson. It's available on the on their website today and it is related to boxing. In fact, it's a huge story ahead of the Olympics this year. Rio 2016 Olympic boxing tournament hit by corruption allegations. Judges and referees alleged to be involved in manipulating draws and bouts. Now, the AIBA, this is the International Boxing uh, uh, Organization, they defend, AIBA defends its conduct and dismisses allegations as rumours. But there's some pretty compelling stuff in here by Owen Gibson. Senior figures within amateur boxing have warned that many bouts, including those to decide medals, could be fixed at the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro amid widespread concern about corruption and financial malpractice at the sport's global governing body, The Guardian can reveal. Horrified senior officials within the sport believe a cabal of officials are able to use their power to manipulate the draw and the judging system to ensure certain boxers will win. Owen Gibson goes on to explain that oftentimes those boxers who are winning fights uh, are from the countries to whom these big tournaments get awarded. So fights are, uh, tournaments are awarded to countries. They pay a lot of money to the IBA, and it seems as though fighters from those countries tend to do particularly well. But there's loads of detail in here anyway by uh, by Owen Gibson. So might as well have a read of that, just to really grim yourself out ahead of the start of the Olympic Games. You well, know, <laughs> oh, no, I mean, yeah. everyone's uh, feelings about the Rio Olympics were so pure and unfettered. <laughs> yeah. and uh, You uh, might just watch things with a more jaundice view. I should say, by the way, there's no, uh, as far as I can tell, it's not... This is what uh, Sofia Ochigava was saying, wasn't it? Uh, it's not that any boxers are in, involved in this malpractice, uh, this alleged malpractice, but it is judges and referees. Uh, okay, that's pretty much it from this podcast. Thanks a million, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Is that? That's the second time it's gone off.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.